you pull out a Bible, find Acts chapter 7. It's on page 914 of the Black Pew Bibles, but you don't want to find Acts chapter 7. And I'm going to pray for us. Father, thank you for this opportunity to come and uh, read from and learn from your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have included Acts chapter 7 for us. Could have just skipped over that sermon given by Stephen 2,000 years ago, but you had things in it for us, even for us specifically here this morning, today. So we thank you for that. I pray that you'd help us to hear from you, to, uh, to be encouraged and challenged by you, to be drawn closer to you. I pray that you would work in our hearts and our minds as we put ourselves under your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The gospel is the good news that even though we didn't deserve it, for we were all rebellious against God, God in his love for us came, took on flesh, Jesus Christ incarnate, took on flesh on a rescue mission to save us. That's what we celebrate this Christmas season, Jesus taking on flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus has saved people out of the world, called them together as his church, called out of the world as a group called the church, and then sent back into the world in order to call others out of the world into the church. The long series that we're working through on the book of Acts tells that story of the church called out of the world and sent out to the world. Today, we start into the last chapter of the first section of Acts. So far, the gospel has been spreading through Jerusalem. The people of God, the church, now nowhere in the New Testament do you get the word church assigned to a building. It's always the group of people. The the church, the people born again in Christ, have been sharing the gospel with others in Jerusalem, and the church has been exploding, growing so fast. This was to be expected if we were paying attention in the first chapter, because Jesus, after he gave the the small group of people, the church, the message, the, the commission to go out and tell others about him, to go to the ends of the earth, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey that all that Jesus has commanded him. When he gave him that commission, he then told him to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. We've read this a few times in our first 13 weeks in Acts, and it's because this is one of the most important verses in the beginning of Acts. This is Acts 1.8. Find it on page 909 if you need to flip back a little. Jesus said to those disciples who were so confused and had no idea what was coming, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, so far in our study of Acts, what has the church done? They've accomplished some amazing things. Thousands of people have heard the gospel and have placed their faith in Christ alone for salvation. They were dead in their sins. They are now alive in Christ. The the congregation of the church in Jerusalem has exploded. Countless people have been healed of illnesses. Demons have been cast out. Some of the top leaders of the church have been arrested twice, have been beaten 
have been threatened and warned, don't ever talk about Jesus again. And of course, they just kept talking about Jesus and the church continued to grow. In fact, they're growing so fast that it started to fracture under the weight of itself. But so far, they haven't gone out. Some people from different parts of the world have come to Jerusalem. They've heard the gospel, probably taken it home. But the church in general has stayed in Jerusalem. They haven't exploded out yet. This chapter 7 is the turning point, the end of basically the first part of Acts, the beginning of the second part of Acts, where we've got the church in Jerusalem becomes the church scattered all over the world. They don't actually scatter until the next chapter, but the reasoning for the scattering is set up in this seventh chapter of Acts. As they grew larger and larger, they needed some administrative help. We saw how the the church chose uh, seven men to be administrators of the food distribution program specifically to make sure that the widows who were dependent on the church for survival were receiving the right amount of food because it wasn't working and they needed help. It was threatening to tear the church apart. One of those guys was named Stephen. And we saw last week how God was with Stephen in a special way, that, it, that when Stephen was facing great challenges, when he was being attacked by the religious leaders, God was with Stephen. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of wisdom. He was full of power. God was very obviously with Stephen. He was brought before the council. He was accused of things. Specifically, he was accused of blasphemy against the temple against God and against Moses, or the, the teachings of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. We looked last week at how those accusations were ridiculous, but they were still made. The way we ended last week was with this almost theatrical picture of Stephen. This is Acts 6.15. Gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. There's something about Stephen. In this moment of trial, in this moment of persecution, there was a supernatural strength and peace, supernatural presence in him. And they couldn't explain it in any other way other than to say that he looks, looks like an angel. He's had his accusations made against him, and he's now going to answer them. Chapter 7 is a a sermon that Stephen preaches to his accusers. Chapter 7 is the longest chapter in the New Testament, except for a few longer ones in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the longest one in Acts, and it's the longest one in everything from Acts to the end of Revelation. It's a single speech that Stephen gives. We are going to spend a total of four weeks looking at this speech. We're going to do part one today, then we're going to do some Christmassy stuff, then we're going to come back and do part two, then um, Scott Bruns from Side of Hills Camp is going to do part three for us, we'll get to part four, and then that'll wrap up the first section of Acts. We're going to see a progression as we go through it. We we started before the sermon with, with 
God being with Stephen, obviously, in his trial. We're going to see today God is with Abraham. God is with Joseph. We're going to see God with Moses when we come back in a couple weeks. We're going to see God with David, God with Solomon. And eventually, the message of Christmas, a few weeks late, God Emmanuel, God with us. That's the point of Stephen's sermon. Why spend four weeks preaching sermons on a sermon that's only one chapter long from 2,000 years ago? Well, because it's in there, right? We're working through Acts. God has things in this sermon that we need to hear. There are things in there that I needed to hear this week. And I needed to, to slow down and try to be dis, undistracted from all the things that were going on around. And I needed to spend time looking at this passage saying, God, what is it that you have for us in there? When we slow down, when we look carefully, we see things in there that we would have just skimmed over if we were reading ourselves, especially if we are reading silently. Let's look now at Acts chapter 7. 1 through 16. Stephen's going to start out with a lot of invitation. He's going to tell the story of the nation of Israel, basically pumping up the guy, saying, we are on the same team. He's going to end with great challenge, such challenge that it will take his life. Acts 7, 1 through 16. The high priest said, are these things so, or the accusations that were brought against him? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers. So he starts out right away saying, we are family. Brothers, fathers, men of Israel, we are a family. Hear me, the God of glory. Notice he doesn't start with himself. He's not defending himself. He starts with God. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans, and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into his land, into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. By the way, there's a good argument against the silly metric system. Foot's length, it's right in there, right? But promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Now, if you tracked with us through Genesis, when we did that long series, you recognize this story. Let's go to the map on the next page here. So the green circle, this is where Abraham grew up. This is where he's from, Ur of the Chaldeans in what is today southeastern Iraq. Under the leadership of his father, he packed everything up, and the family made their way up the Tigris and Euphrates rivers to Haran, which was a major hub of trade at the time. It's in Turkey today. They spent some time there. Dad died, and then God called Abraham to continue the journey down to what was called the land of Canaan. We now call the land of Israel, and it's also referred to as the promised land because God promised to give Abraham's descendants, not really Abraham, Abraham's descendants, the inheritance of that land of Canaan, Israel, the promised land. So far, Stephen is, is trying to say, hey, guys, we are on the same team here. We have the same father, Abraham. 
We are in this promised land, the the land of Israel, because God gave it to us. Now, he quickly summarizes that. We're going to jump back to Genesis 12. We're going to read the original account of that and get a little bit more detail in there. So if you want to put your thumb in page 914 and go all the way back to page 8, Genesis 12, we read this. Now the Lord said to Abram, because he was called Abram at the time, hadn't yet been changed to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. Now, he's got no kids at this point, and yet God is saying, I'm going to make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Quite the promise. All the families of the earth blessed somehow in Abraham and his descendants. So God sends him off on a journey, and God goes with him. God is with Abraham every step of the way up to Haran, down to Canaan, down to Egypt, back to Canaan, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, all of those things that happened in the Abraham story, God is with Abraham that whole time. If we go back to Acts chapter 7, starting with verse 6 now, we get this. God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners, so foreigners, temporary living in a land that's not their own in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and inflict them for 400 years. So God is promising that Abraham will have many descendants, even though he has none, that those descendants will grow into a great nation, even though they will be enslaved inside of another land for 400 years. Seven, but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place, that is, the land of Israel, and specifically where the temple was built, in which one of the rooms of the temple houses the Sanhedrin, who are currently putting Stephen on trial. So God promised great nation 400 years in slavery. We know that they were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And he promised he'd bring them back out, and someday they'd be together as a nation in the land of Israel. Now imagine yourself as a young lad or a young lady, you're in the 399th year of slavery in Egypt, and you're seriously doubting if God is ever going to come through on this promise. And Moses shows up, he starts doing his miracles, and all the, the crazy stuff of Exodus happens. And you happen to be one of those few We're alive at just the right time to see that promise fulfilled. God really hasn't abandoned us. We thought he was not with us, but he is. And he has brought us out of this land of slavery, and he's given us this good land of Israel. These promises were not written down at that point. Moses would write them down years later. But God gave them a sign, a a sign to remember this, a sign of the covenant. It was kind of an odd sign. It was the sign of circumcision. And it was meant to to help them stand apart from the nations, but also it was meant to remind them 
who they belonged to. Verse 8, he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Now, think about this. Through the rest of the Bible, you get these words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob grouped together. Stephen, as he's trying to summarize the movement of God in the Old Testament, he takes a single verse and he just summarizes all of the lives of Isaac and Jacob into that. There was so much that took place in those lives. Jacob, whose name would become Israel, the namesake of the nation, Stephen just coasts right over the top in order to get to these guys called the 12 patriarchs, the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. We're going to go on now. Verse 9. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. Stephen just says it plainly. Luke records this for it plainly. But God was with Joseph. At what moment in Joseph's life is this? When his brothers have sold him as a slave. We are told that God with him. And rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his households. So there's two verses we get this guy mentioned, Joseph. We're told that he's a slave. In the next verse, he's the ruler of all Egypt. There's so much story that's just skimmed over there. It's okay because we spent a lot of time going through it this spring. But I want us to see some amazing parallels. We don't see these unless we slow down and we look at each verse carefully. There are these incredible parallels between Joseph and Stephen himself. Two really important things to look at first. Stephen tells us plainly that God was with Joseph. This is the theme of Stephen's whole sermon. God's with Abraham, God is with Joseph. Future weeks, God is with Moses and David and Solomon. And finally, God is with us, Emmanuel. He wants to make sure that we understand the progression there. Secondly, we notice that God gave Joseph, in Stephen's words, favor and wisdom before Pharaoh. Now, you may remember how that story played out and, and how the slave rose to be influential and was cast back into imprisonment and then rose again to rule over all of Egypt except for Pharaoh himself. You also may remember that Stephen was chosen as one of those first seven deacons. And we're told the, the qualifications for those deacons in Acts 6.3 Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Joseph, as you read the story in Genesis, is a man of good reputation. Nothing can stick to him very long. Even when he's accused and he's thrown in prison, the truth comes out and he is vindicated. Stephen also is a man of good reputation. That's why he's chosen as one of these seven. We are meant to see the parallel between Joseph and Stephen here. We're told that the, the seven chosen deacons and acts were full of the Spirit 
and full of wisdom. Joseph, too, was full of the Spirit. If you remember, Joseph comes, is brought before Pharaoh to uh, explain the dreams, and he says, okay, here's the deal, Pharaoh. There's going to be seven years of amazing harvest, and there's going to be seven years of famine, so you need to store up a whole bunch of extra grain for the first seven years so that the people don't starve to death in the second seven years. Pharaoh's response is, not only, wow, that's a great idea, but Pharaoh, pagan king of Egypt, recognizes the presence of the Spirit of God in Joseph and his wisdom. Genesis 41, 38. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? So in that moment in Joseph's life, the Spirit is filling him, even to the point it's obvious to the pagan king of Egypt. As Stephen is telling us this, he's one of those guys who is said to be full of the Spirit. Joseph is obviously demonstrating great wisdom. Stephen is chosen because he is full of wisdom. But there's a final par- parallel that's a little trickier to see, but it's a little, a little richer for us even. So let's go back to Acts 7. We'll see again how Stephen describes Joseph. Acts 7, 9. The patriarchs, so Joseph's brothers, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him, rescued him out of all of his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all of his household. Joseph's not just full of the Spirit and full of wisdom, he's, he's got favor too. God has given him Favor. Now, we talked about the idea of grace last week, and we said that one of the ways that we define grace is the idea of favor. If God shows grace to you, he is showing you favor. Now, Genesis is written in Hebrew. Acts is written in Greek. And as Stephen speaks, probably in Aramaic, to his guys who are accusing him, And then Luke ends up recording for us later in Greek. There's this cool little hidden parallel. In Acts 6, 8, we read this. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. In chapter 6, Stephen is said to be full of grace in chapter 7, Stephen refers to Joseph as having favor, and he uses the same word, charis, spelled with an X, which would be the C-H sound, which is why we have Xmas. Christmas is the abbreviation for Christ. The word charis is the same there, favor in chapter 7, grace in chapter 6, and we are meant to understand that in the big picture, not only of the Genesis story, but in of Stephen standing before these guys, being accused, and, and trying to make the case that God has come as Emmanuel with us, we are meant to see that Joseph received the grace of God, the favor of God on him, and we use, was used in a specific way at a specific point in time, and that Stephen received the grace of God, the favor of God on him, and was used in a specific way. How was Joseph used? He was used to wisely manage a food program so that people wouldn't starve. 
How is Stephen used to wisely manage a food program so that people wouldn't go hungry? This is all, this is 2,000 years in the making, but the words of Stephen come together in exactly the right way, recorded for us by Luke in exactly the right way so that we can slow down, pause, and realize this God who is, who is currently working through Stephen is the same God who was working through Joseph. And they've both been given grace, both given favor, they're given the spirit, given wisdom, given power. Stephen is a mirror image of Joseph from 2,000 years before. Why these parallels? Why this intentional wording for us, preserved for us for 2,000 years so we can read it? Because Stephen's point is this. God was with Abraham. God was with Joseph. Moses, David, Solomon. And God is with us. He's, he's going to make the case before these accusers that God came in the flesh, Jesus, Emmanuel. That same God who was with Joseph is with him now. is with us now. Acts 7, starting with verse 11, he goes on. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob, so Joseph's dad, who's back in Canaan, who thinks Joseph is dead, heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers, those troublesome brothers who sold Joseph, on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and that is, he let the cat out of the bag, saying, hey, it's me, guys. Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh, and Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb of Abraham, and that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver for the sons, from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. So Stephen is here summarizing multiple chapters of the Joseph story in Genesis by simply telling us, Jacob and his guys were hungry. They went looking for food. They came back. They got more food. Joseph explained who he was. They all came to live in Egypt. They eventually went back to bury Jacob in Israel. For me, it's easier to look at this on a map and understand what's going on. We've got our same map as before, but this time we've got these arrows going out to Egypt, to the land of Goshen, where the Israelites settled, and back. What we don't see, because it would make it so cluttered, is that there's multiple backs and forth there. So Abraham arrives in Canaan. He goes to Egypt for a while. He comes back to Canaan. Joseph is taken as a slave to Egypt. The brothers of Joseph come down, get food, go back to Canaan, go back to get more food, find out that it's Joseph, go back to get Jacob, bring Jacob to, Israel, uh, to Egypt. Jacob dies. They take him back to the land of Canaan. Why talk about this in front of your accusers? They all know this. This is the defining story of the the birth of the nation of Israel. This is every school kid in Israel knows this story with a whole lot more detail than what Stephen is talking about. Why even talk about this at all? It's to simply make this point. Through all of this, God was with our fathers. And now God is with us if 
we are in Christ. To wrap this up, I want us to look at a different part of the New Testament. So we're going to leave behind Genesis and the retelling of Genesis from Acts, and we're going to go to Romans chapter 8. It's on page 944. We're going to read verses 28 through 39 of Romans chapter 8. It's the Apostle Paul talking. We're going to meet the Apostle Paul in Acts 8. This is him many years later writing. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, you've probably heard that verse a lot. It's really encouraging. When things are going rotten for you, you can pull this out. You can say, I love God. He loves me. He's working all these things together for my good. You've heard it a lot. What's the context? Where, where do we go after this verse? The next two verses are called the golden chain of Romans. How can we trust that God is working for our good? Well, it's the next two verses that demonstrate to us that we belong to him. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those are all actions done by God for us on our behalf. We do not do those things. We don't foreknow ourselves. We don't predestine ourselves. We don't justify ourselves. We get all the way down to the end of the chain. We don't glorify ourselves. God does that for us. And all of those in that golden chain of Romans there, they're all in the past tense. They're a done deal. God has done them for us. So if you, if you are in Christ today, if, if you have been born again in Christ, your future is already determined. You are guaranteed to be glorified with him in heaven. In the mind of God, it's already accomplished. The work has been done. I know, you're still sore and you get sick and you got to go to work and all those things that aren't very glorious right now. But the deal is done. He has done it for you. Then we get to 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? And this is why this passage came to mind as I was studying our Acts passage today. If God is for us, if God is with us, who could be against us? What have you got coming against you? What are you worried about over the next week? What, what fears are crowding in on you? What pressures are threatening to crush you? What relationships are falling apart and stressing you out? Is God with you? If you are in Christ, then the Holy Spirit of God is living inside of you. He is with you in a very intimate way. Who could be against you? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Think about Stephen bringing these having these charges brought against him by the high priest, the chief priest of the people of Israel. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Again, such good gospel news there. It's God, not me, not you, who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The only way that we can be with God, the only way that we can say, like Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, Solomon, Stephen, the only way we can say God is with us is because of the mediating work of Christ on our behalf. Paul here mentions the death, and he says even more the resurrection of Jesus is what makes it possible for us to be with God, for God to be with us. The death and resurrection of Jesus opened the door for us to be together. And then these great words in 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, like Stephen was experiencing at that time, or distress, or persecution, or famine, in the story of Joseph, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It's kind of weird that he quotes that in there, but he's, he's trying to make the point, look, hardship is to be expected, but God is with you. And he goes back to his thought, verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Like, not just conquerors, but more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. So it's not that you're a conqueror. It's that through Jesus, who loved us, you're more than a conqueror. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul is able to, to put into words what is true at the time that Stephen is giving his sermon, but that Stephen just can't put it all together. If you are in Christ, you are with God. God is with you. You think about the giants of the faith like Abraham and Joseph and Moses and the others. God is with them. But if you're in Christ, God is with you to an even greater extent. The Holy Spirit living inside of you, promising never to leave you, sealing you for the day of salvation, guaranteeing that you will be glorified with him in heaven. And if God is with you in that way, if he is for you in that way, who could be against you? What could separate you from the love of God? goes through the whole list. And he says, no, none of that. It goes through another list. None of this could possibly separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, you cannot be separated from God. He is with you. Now, if it was up to us, we, we wouldn't stand a chance because none of us are worthy of this. None of us are worthy of the rescue, worthy of the guarantee, worthy of the indwelling of the Spirit. Only Christ is worthy, and as He gives Himself up for us on our behalf, the worthy, perfect sacrifice, 
transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He takes us as spiritual orphans and he adopts us into the family of God. He takes us who are far from God and unites us with God in a way that we will not be separated from him ever. All because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The man who writes those amazing words for us in Romans is standing there observing the trial of Stephen. And at the end of the trial of Stephen, when he's dragged outside and the people grab stones, big rocks, and they pummel him to death, we're told that Paul, named Saul at that time, is standing there holding the coats of the killers overseeing the execution of Stephen. At that moment in Paul's life, he is far from God. He is an enemy of God, killing a servant of God because the servant of God has dared to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. And yet decades later, Paul writes in Romans, if you're in Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Paul's life has been entirely transformed from the grace of God Luke records for us that dark, awful moment that happens after the end of the sermon. I hope that this is encouraging to you. I hope that as you think about the weight of the world, as you think about the things that are discouraging to you, the things that you're concerned about, the things that you're coming up against, the, the enemies that may be rising against you, I hope that it's encouraging to you that God is with you if you are in Christ. I hope that doesn't fill you with, with pride and with arrogance. Look how great I am. Instead, I hope that it turns you in humility to worship your Savior, the one who is worthy and welcomes you into his family. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this section of Acts 7 and uh, the beautiful truths that you have embedded in there for us. Thank you that you were with Abraham, that you were with Joseph, you were with Stephen. You would turn Paul around and bring him to be with him. And that you have invited us to be with you now. Lord, if, for those here who have not yet trusted in the gospel, who have not turned from their own desire to rule their lives and have trusted in you alone for salvation, surrendering to you as Lord. Those who have not yet done that, Lord, may they do that this Christmas season. May they be able to celebrate Emmanuel, God with us, for the first time ever in their lives. They would know that God has come to dwell in them when they have come to him in repentance and faith and been reborn in him. We thank you for the incredible gospel message that though we were not worthy, Jesus, who was worthy, gave himself up for us. So let us sing now celebration of that one who was with these men thousands of years ago, who dwells in us now and is worthy of all of our praise and worship. In Jesus' name, amen.